the most popular game in the modern world is football. But no, not that football, not American football with quarterbacks and huddles and pigskins. What we here in the U.S. and Canada, among a few other places in the world, call soccer, everyone else calls football. So from here forth in this episode, we'll be calling soccer by its real name, its global name, football. The sport has an estimated 3.5 billion fans worldwide and 250 million players spread across about 200 countries. While the Super Bowl averages 100 million viewers every year, events like the World Cup Final can draw about 500 million viewers, or five times that of the Super Bowl. Called the beautiful game for its simplicity and grace and the passion and joy it can evoke, football is like an international language. Wherever you go in the world, you're likely to find people kicking a ball and it probably wouldn't take much for you to want to join in. But there's also a dark side to the beautiful game. From the corporatization of 100-year-old local institutions to allegations of international bribery and corruption, and even cases of human rights abuses, football has become a sort of microcosm of some of the most pressing issues in our world today. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Rosillo. To make sense of what's happening with the world's most popular sport and to discuss the future of the beautiful game, we're joined today by Luke Aaron Moore, co-host and producer of the United Kingdom's biggest independent football show, The Football Ramble. Luke is a radio presenter, a broadcaster, and the co-host and producer of a number of shows with Stack, an award-winning independent podcast company that brings authentic conversations to life. The football ramble began as four fans sharing their love of football around a kitchen table. And while the ramble still makes plenty of time for its characteristic humor, witty banter, and running gags about philandering football personalities and folly-prone former players... The show and its hosts, who now include the likes of journalists and media personalities, increasingly find the need to discuss various social, political, economic, and human rights issues that come up around the game on an almost weekly basis. So what exactly is happening in modern football? Is the beautiful game really at risk of feeling a little less beautiful? And what can fans like us do about it? Luke, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. What a fantastic intro. You made me sound very, very successful and, um, and good. <laughs> well, we'll try to maintain that for as, for as long as we can. But, you know, just, <laughs> now you're going to feel let down from here on in. <laughs> no. uh, so, so, Luke, for those of us who grew up outside of a, a football-centric culture, how much of a role does the game really play in a place like England? Um, and is football everywhere all the time? Or does it depend on who you are, what you do, and maybe how you grew up? I think that it is a hugely important part of British culture. And I think it's probably, and this sounds like a bit of a, perhaps a strange thing to say, because if your listeners are predominantly American and they think of Britain, they perhaps think of football. Uh, But I actually think it's probably underplayed in society in the UK generally, just how important it is culturally um, to so many people now football is everywhere here and so that sounds a little bit of a counterintuitive thing to say but what i mean by that is i think that it's regularly underestimated how important football is to so many people in this country it's by far and away the most popular sport it's by far and away the most participated um pastime as far as i know and it is also 
you know, hugely um, available to people um, to play because of its simplicity, as you've already mentioned in that intro. But it would be even more impactful if it wasn't gatekept, gatekept by you know subscription television and 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 you know prices and all the rest of the things. So it's, it's really really important to so to grow up in in the UK is really to grow up around football. Now there are always going to be people who reject it or aren't interested in it who don't want to be a part of it but generally speaking i mean it really is it's super super important it really does seem from watching from afar like like british people take a personal pride and personal stake like a sense of ownership of the game um, i know the history of the game is uh at least the history of the modern game is is rooted in England and the game really becoming um, formalized and popularized in England. I think there's also like some controversy about like if the game started in Asia or if a game like it started in Asia, there's even like other games in Central and South America that involved like kicking a ball and using different parts of your body. It's, you know, people, human beings using balls and sport, not the most original idea, but in England specifically, it seems like the English have a real sense of personal pride and ownership in the game. Is that what you mean when you're saying like, it seems almost to be understated based on how deeply embedded it is in the culture? Yeah, I think in a way, I, th- I think, I mean, it's, it's basically the fact that England, English people and Scottish people would, would co- basically codified the game as we now know it, right? So the, the general, I mean, I'm not a sports historian, but the general consensus is that it did exist in other places. It's been going, it went back you know, in various forms, thousands of years, but the codification of the game and the kind of setting the stall out of, of, um, of what it means to play the game officially was established here um, because we're a nation of officious busybodies, as uh, I think Napoleon called the, the English a nation of shopkeepers. Um, so that's essentially why it has its roots here. And then as a result of that, partly because we've been less than successful certainly on the men's side on the pitch at international level we kind of convince ourselves that we've made our contribution by you know writing down the rules in some room above a pub in the mid 19th century football seems to have a pretty outsized role in your life uh, and if not in your whole life then certainly in your working life these days i'm curious though if the game played a big role, had a big influence on you when you were young and growing up on the south coast of England in Portsmouth, uh, if it had a particular impact on you as a kid? Yeah, it had a big impact. Uh, I liked to play with my friends. I played for lots of different teams, um, played all the way through to my early 30s, um, university here and over, played overseas as well. Um, but ultimately, I fell in love with football when I was a kid, as many kids here do. Um, and it's kind of an interesting question because because of the nature of you know what I do, I get asked this question quite a lot, and I think people expect me to say I've been totally football obsessed my whole life, but it's not actually as simple as that. For me, I've always been interested in football, and I certainly know enough about it to suggest that I probably had quite a misspent use relating to the game because I can't remember much about school, but I can remember much about, a lot about football. Um, but at the same time, uh, and this kind of speaks to the, the wider stack story, I suppose, I've always had lots of um, interests. So and football's been one of those. It's been an important one, and it's been you know something that's you know stood me in pretty good stead, and I've been able to base you know, the platform of my career on it. Um, but yeah, I was as, in, as into it as any other kid of my age of my generation was. Um, 
and it's a huge part of, of growing up and I took that interest into into adulthood. Over the last 15 years, you've been recording the Football Ramble with primarily three other co-hosts, Jim Campbell, Marcus Speller, and Pete Donaldson. The the four of you constituted the, the Ramble for a number of years. Um, in the last couple of years, the show has expanded and added at least four different co-hosts and had some spin-off shows uh, and... The Football Ramble has birthed Stack, the independent podcast production company that you're a part of, uh, and also co-host and produce other shows for. From the podcast production standpoint, as a creative and as a creator of many different conversation-based podcasts, I'm wondering what you think distinguishes Stack's productions that's made it an award-winning company. What is it that you try to cultivate, create with the shows um, besides the obvious, which is like entertainment and maybe a bit of a distraction? Is there something in particular that you all are trying to deliver with your productions? I think that, and I can't speak on behalf of the entire team and and realistically, you know, as I sit here now, the team do the majority of the work, right? So they, they, you you ask, we have 10 full-time members of staff at Stack and if you ask them, you'd probably get a different answer from each of them. But my answer is that I'm particularly interested in in people and human beings and the way they interact with each other and the stories they tell. And so as a result, we're always looking for people who on air can carry out and perform like organic, organically obtained chemistry on for, for listeners right because ultimately the most important thing in this is the listener is entertained we make shows for people who you know get up in the morning and it's raining outside and perhaps like want to go to work but they know they've got to get on the train or they're not excited about going to the gym or they know they've got to do it so our responsibility is to entertain them for the short period that we have them and they're always going to be the priority so what we try and avoid is kind of one-upmanship um forced um quote banter between people who don't know each other that well and try and really foster and 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 a team atmosphere where the producers and the presenters are entirely collaborative and the producers feel as important as the presenters and vice versa and then we make sure that the stuff that you hear on the on the shows themselves is natural or as natural as possible so um that to me is, is is really important and that's what i'm probably predominantly for our studio-based like roundtable entertainment shows. For some of the other shows we make it, perhaps it's slightly different. But for the most part, that's what we're going for. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that it is better or it is different or, you know, is, you know, than other you know, rival shows. You, 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 you've said that and I, I appreciate you saying it, but for us, we're kind of focused on what we're doing and that's what we're looking for. And a good example, I think would probably be the, 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 the modern iteration of the ramble, right? So we added four new people to the original lineup of four. So we added Kate, Jules, Andy, and Vish. And we didn't just go out there and try and find the most knowledgeable people about football or the technically best presenter. You know, it, it was, you know, we'd like them to have some knowledge and we'd like them to be technically good. And, you know, they are technically good, but we need to know that they could blend in as part of the team. And so it would still feel authentic and it would still feel natural. And ultimately, and most importantly, our listenership, which we spent a lot, a long time cultivating would accept them because we didn't want 
the majority of the listenership to feel that like, the show was being taken away from them or was becoming something completely different. And of course, you're never going to please everyone all the time. But we thought about it carefully and we, we had some people in mind and they all accepted. And um, that's why we were able to maintain it and, and continue to, I believe, you know, improve the shows that we're, that we're making. So as a broadcaster, you're essentially paid to have opinions. Um, part of the work that you do as a, as a storyteller, I mean, you're commenting on what you're watching in the game, but you're also making sense for people. And I imagine also making sense for yourself of what you're experiencing in the world around you. And I wonder about the process, if it, the practice or the skill or the process that may be involved in understanding even what it is that you feel and believe about these issues, uh, different news stories that come up, um, or just, just your hot takes on the latest match that you're discussing with the Ramble. What is your process like? I know for me, I go very internal. I need to kind of like isolate and go kind of like take a deep dive to understand and unpack how I'm thinking or, or what I'm feeling. And I imagine that it's quite a pressure-filled situation when you're live on air on the radio or you're speaking to potentially millions of listeners every month as you do with the Ramble. Is there a secret sauce? Is there a skill or a practice or something that you've developed uh, to help you formulate and understand and speak confidently to how you feel about different issues? Or is it more instinctive uh, about letting go? It's a really good question. I think first and foremost, if you're not a passionate, opinionated person who's inspired to learn and are interested in lots of different things, then you you shouldn't be a broadcaster, right? So if, if you're if you're having a conversation with yourself or you're framing it as in, I'd quite like to be a broadcaster, but I don't know how I'm going to be able to develop or manufacture these kind of opinions. There are plenty of people out there who do do that, you know, and it wouldn't be fair to name them. But there are plenty of people out there who do do that, in my opinion, and that's no good, right? Listeners will sniff through it, see through it. They won't They won't want to hear it very often. And you're what's more, you'll be saying one thing different in three weeks' time than you were saying three weeks before. So I think first and foremost, it's really important that it's natural and that it's a kind of organic process. Um, and I want people who are on the show with me to be opinionated. And I think it's fine to have a spirited debate about things as long as we're not going down the avenue of this one-upmanship or proving each other wrong or all the rest of it. I think everything should be considered to be valid once they're in that in that studio with us. They've earned the right to be there. But in terms of how I specifically plan for it, um, really I just I just call it as I see it, to be honest. I mean, there's no real secret source here. I don't believe that that I have a formula that, that means that I've kind of worked out how to game the system and, and can therefore just deliver these takes that, people think are good. I mean, I, half the time, I promise you this, half the time people don't think the takes are good. They, they disagree. And so, and that's obviously up, up to them. So for me, I, in terms of we're talking about a specific ramble episode, so on a Monday or whatever, reacting to the game's big stories, um, to, be, to be honest, I just try and immerse myself in the sport, try and immerse myself in the issues, and I go in there and, and just do it. I don't really write much down, don't really do anything in terms of notes. Um, I just... I just go for it. There, there may be a couple of things here and there where I need to be reminded of a stat or I need to work out exactly the specific detail of a particular performance or a, or a, or a score back in the day or whatever. Or if we're talking about a social issue, 
you know, it's important to have the facts in front of you. So that'll be what the running order document is for, where there's stuff on there that you can rely upon that's been kind of fact-checked and is there for you to support your your arguments and things. But to be honest, the Ramble's always been a pretty natural show. I mean, we started out as just four mates just doing stuff and experimenting, really. Uh, and it, I've tried to remain true to the spirit of that, to be honest. I, I found that for a period of time I was over-preparing a bit. And then what happens is you get in that cycle where you think, well, I've done all this preparation, so I want to make sure I use it. And then it becomes about you. It doesn't become about the listening experience. And so you kind of have to dial back from that. But I also do think, you know, with the if you look at the eight people who are on air regularly and you've got the European guys as well and some other bits that we do, they'd probably almost – well, in fact, they'd almost certainly give you a different answer to me because I think it's a very personal experience and process. One of the big reasons why I wanted to invite you onto the show, Luke, is – because the football ramble doesn't shy away from discussing issues that arise in and around the game. And I'm for, for a humor-based podcast, I think the podcast would probably be categorized as a comedy, um, ta- in, in a comedy, comedic podcast talking about sports. When something happens in the game, I'm always so heartened as a listener of six-plus years for how you all discuss issues with a lot of poignance and grace and not a lot of um, knee-jerk reactions. But has it been tempting over the years to sidestep or avoid talking about quote-unquote controversial issues that aren't directly related to the game on the pitch? Or do you consider it to be part of like a moral or ethical responsibility to speak to these issues when they arise as they do? It's a good question, and I think I have to be careful how, how I answer this so I don't come across as too high-minded and, and self-referential. But I do think – well, first of all, I don't believe that you really can divide politics from sport or anything really. By its nature, it's kind of going to touch everything that we say and do. And And if you attempt to do that, because football is so pervading in society in general – you're gonna you're gonna look a bit silly. So we we do we, so we we kind of feel like probably that if we're being totally honest, if we want to be credible and taken seriously, and of course we don't really take ourselves seriously as you've alluded to. We do take our job and our role seriously. If we do want to continue to be able to, you know, do that, we can't sidestep big issues. I mean, and the threshold for us is actually quite simple. The threshold is: would it sound odd to our listenership? If we weren't address, if we weren't to address this, so, and and if the answer to that is yes, it would sound odd, then we have to cover it, and then really you're just talking about, you know, relying on the fact that you are a, hopefully a decent, tolerant person who who, you know, cares a lot about your fellow human beings and all the rest of it, and you want you know justice to, justice to prevail, and you want to, you know, all the other kind of modern, progressive, kind of Western European liberal values, you want them to be. Uh, to be to be heard and so there's no kind of trick to it again it's not again to use that phrase again there's no kind of secret source to it we surrounded ourselves with decent people who are thoughtful and who want you know believe in social justice for example and so you have to kind of take your role in that seriously and you don't want to be preaching you don't want to tell people you're right and they're wrong but you do want to give your opinion and you do want to show some support and ultimately as well we've been given a platform, right? And it's a platform that we've earned completely from scratch, organically. No one's handed it to us. We've earned it. And you have a responsibility, I believe, to use that platform for good. So I don't feel like, you know, and, and, so, and this is kind of really 
particularly in, in in the US, which I do have a little bit of knowledge about, this is kind of the bastion of the of the, the, the right wing, where you kind of all of a sudden, because you're a sportscaster or a broadcaster or something or an actor or a sports person, you no longer get to have an opinion on political issues. You like like you so like it's almost like as if so you no longer exist as a human being because you've been successful in what you do. And I actually think the opposite is true. I actually think that for all the stay in your lane kind of garbage that comes back the other way perhaps people should think you know the way this person is successful is because they've worked really hard and they're quite clever and they've thought about it and they they deserve a, to have their platform heard because they've earned it themselves that stuff's all really important to me and so when it comes to addressing these types of issues it never really feels that difficult because you're only ever really speaking with honesty you know i'm not trying to kind of perform a role or say something i don't believe it then just becomes an extension of an opinion that I would have on the sport or music or whatever you know it just becomes another one of the opinions that i have and so it's not i don't necessarily find that difficult i think you have to tread maybe perhaps a little bit more carefully to make sure you're being respectful to everyone because you know it's easy it's the easiest thing in the world when you're in a fast-paced broadcasting environment to be a you know to not you know necessarily think of all the detail but other than that it's it's just something we feel is really important for us to do that idea that you can't really divide politics or like social issues from sports. Uh, a lot of ways that's the premise of this conversation I wanted to have with you. And so maybe we could transition into talking about a couple of those issues while we have, um, ha- have you here to discuss them with us. And again, like you said, you're not a football historian. You're, you're not um, necessarily an expert on these like social and political issues, but being so embedded in the world of football in you know one of the epicenters of the game in England I think it'll make for an interesting conversation um, one thing that I want to talk with you about is ownership of these clubs um, because there's been some recent controversy ar- around them and I don't see that issue going away anytime soon uh, before we talk about people like Roman Abramovich uh, and the recent takeover of Newcastle United could you give our listeners a sense for how many clubs in the UK were historically owned and operated uh, and some still are in smaller towns because these weren't always like huge global corporate entities, were they? Historically, football clubs have been focal points of communities and they've existed where there has been a, you know, a sizable conurbation of people who would, you know, start a football team either as an extension of a, of a, you know, a factory or a working environment or a social club or whatever. And then over time, they've grown and grown and grown through things like success or, or whatever. And then now we are in a situation where, you know, the majority of, of top flight clubs in, the, in England will be owned by, you know, wealthy individuals and they will be used as a vehicle for pleasure or for social ex- social improvement or even, you know, at the, the, the worst end of the scale, you know, political sports washing and, and all that type of stuff. So if I'm, if I'm to understand the question correctly, I mean, the, the idea is that we now have a problem with ownership in English football and we have had for some time. And the reason for that is a lack of regulation in place and a reason and then a lack of, you know, due diligence and um, monitoring of the types of people that are being allowed to buy these clubs that have historically always had at least yeah one eye on the local community, depending on how far you go back. Yeah, and Roman Abramovich specifically was a really interesting case. He is a Russian oligarch uh, with uh, reported ties very close to Vladimir Putin. He purchased Chelsea Football Club, which is one of the more 
reputable brands, one of the biggest clubs, uh, nearly annual trophy winners, the London-based side, Chelsea. And Abramovich poured something like $2 billion of personal money into Chelsea uh, over the last 20 years. And everything was going pretty well until Vladimir Putin orders the Russian military to invade Ukraine in February of 2022. Then Chelsea becomes seen as an asset by the UK government. And so as global governments start applying economic and social and political pressure onto Russian oligarchs associated to Vladimir Putin, Chelsea Football Club finds the unwanted focus of the UK government. What happened next? Yeah, so I think that probably depends on who you ask. And, and if you're talking about you know, certain sections of fans of different clubs, rival clubs, and of Chelsea themselves, I mean, the response was going to be as predictable as I'm sure you, you can work out. Um, but ultimately, among the adults in the room, I suppose the situation was handled in a way that said, um, you know, it's, it's an asset of a, of a now a sanctioned individual. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's subject to UK law, the same as all of his other assets are under those sanctions. And then they kind of issued a special dispensation for them to continue perform, you know, trading effectively as a, as a club, but with restrictions and limits on certain things like the selling of tickets and selling of merchandise and everything like that. And then the government were able to oversee the selling of the club to another individual in this case an american um high net worth individual that's that's taken it over and i think you know, the broader response to your question i suppose is is twofold one is you know what, what kind of society do we want to be here in the uk and i know we're talking about english football here but you know a lot of this is governed by you know more broadly as, as the united kingdom um and then what kind of sport what kind of national sport do we want to have and i think that there is a huge issue around you know, the British economy being propped up by essentially Russian money and, and, and corrupt money and, and all the rest of it. And that's a kind of wider issue that I'm not that qualified to speak on, although I do know of its existence. And the second thing is the sport side of it. What kind of national sport do we want to have in this country? Do we want it to be a sport for all? Do we want it to be as accessible as, as you said in your intro? The, basically, the underpinning of the success of it is its accessibility and its simplicity. Or do we want to uh, make it free for these people to, to own these clubs and, and, and to not only wash their own reputation for geopolitical reasons, but also essentially financially dope our, our national sport and make the playing field so uneven that at worst, it's essentially a, you know, a bit of a procession really. I mean, you know, you've got, you're obviously going to have clubs that compete for trophies and there's going to be a, a smaller and smaller pool of those clubs that can realistically win things. But at the same time, you know, you've got you know countless clubs in the ninety-two clubs in the English football, professional football, and the league system, of whom you know ninety-five percent of them have got no chance of winning a single thing. So, I mean, that was never the case before. So, there's a social aspect to it, which is far bigger, which is probably for far bigger brains than mine. But the sports side of it is this kind of creeping death of it doesn't happen overnight. But every so often, it's chipped away at, chipped away at, chipped away at, until we have this kind of bastardization of financially doped kind of zombie football at the very top level, which becomes really more like theatre than, 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 than sport as we understood it as when, we, when we were perhaps a bit younger. So I still love football, and I still really enjoy watching it, and I still get sucked in by all the drama. But it kind of annoys me sometimes that as football broadcasters, 
we are just given the parameters that we're given and we can only operate within them because I can't realistically make an entertaining show that people want to hear by starting every single episode by complaining about the Saudis only Newcastle or, you know, Man City financially dope in the league because it just becomes tedious. You can't, you can't be like that. So almost you are through the nature of the job that you're being asked to do or being expected to do. You have to accept these parameters that almost you don't really want to accept, but you've got no choice. And so, of course, it's not all about me, but when it comes to making a show, which is what we're talking about here, it is frustrating because we can fight against these things and we can bring them up. But ultimately, as, as we all know, as listeners to or watchers of TV and listeners to podcast or whatever, we don't want to hear negative stuff over and over again because that's not, that's not what we're coming here for. So it's a tricky one, really, I think, on that level. So that's one case of a Russian oligarch purchasing a Premier League club about 20 years ago in uh, 2003. And clearly there were not enough safeguards, methods, procedures, or eyes on the situation of fans or government officials to care to maybe think that this was not a good idea. But even more recently, in 2021, another big club in the north of England, Newcastle United Football Club, was purchased by a consortium. And this consortium was consisting of something called the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, which is essentially the, the Saudi regime itself using its national funds to invest in and purchase an English football team to do something that has been called dubbed sports washing and sports washing is essentially when a even authoritative uh, or dictatorship uh, regime internationally purchases a sports club invests tons of money into the sports club to basically garner good favor from sports fans and in so doing whitewashes or sports washes it's unsavory reputation and the Saudi regime has a less than stellar record with human rights issues and this all just happened in 2021 so is sports washing here to stay well I don't I can't predict the future so and, and you know regular listeners to to our show will know that you know I re, you know, pretty pretty regularly come on the start trying to predict what's going to happen but but I would answer the question in this way I would say if Manchester United or Liverpool, who are currently owned by American businessmen and are the biggest um, clubs in England, if they came up for sale, if either of those owners wanted to sell them, what are, who are the likely candidates to buy them? And the pool is so small that you know it's, it's highly likely that some of the candidates – would be of this of this nature of the nature that you've you've already mentioned. I'm not suggesting that you know, it would happen, or you know that maybe there'd be some fan unrest and it would stop it happening. But they're, they're open to it just chiefly because the checks and balances and the rules laid down by the English FA aren't robust enough. And so, even when they try and stop it, they can't really. And then a lot of the ch- the, the checks they do do remain retrospective, and. I think it's a really uneasy kind of relationship between the privately owned nature of these entities and a wider regulatory system, which the sport subscribes to. And I don't know if they're conducive to any kind of consistency. So it's tough because football clubs aren't, as they should be, in my view, completely protected as like community 
related assets and and there should be i believe there should be some kind of regulation in place the same way you would regulate an area of you know an area of outstanding natural beauty or a national park or a listed building or whatever because they have that history and because they're important to so many people but ultimately that's just you know that's cloud cuckoo land stuff now that's ne- that's never going to happen now and there's no realistic way to wrestle this stuff back and and you know you can't unring a bell right so there's nothing you could do about it but if it was done again properly i think that's what you'd have to go down the the road the kind of road of doing and there's all sorts of kind of sporting based things you could do as well to to compete make it competitive and, and keep it as pure as possible for for the fans of the club who are ultimately the only permanent thing about a football club along with the well yeah i mean they really are the only permanent thing of uh, uh, you know, relating to a football club but that's just all fantasy stuff now really that's just me saying that you know if, if it were if it were in an ideal situation, this is how I think it would look, but it's never going to look like that now. So the short answer, I suppose, is I, I presume, yeah, there would be potential for more oligarchs, more essentially you know, state-sponsored investment funds to be involved in football more often. It's happening in Europe as well. Um, and, yeah, I think, I think it's just part of the, the sport these days, and there's not really an awful lot we can do about it. So essentially, it sounds like because of how much money these clubs make and how much how much they're worth in, you know, Chelsea got sold for, I think, four and a half, five billion U.S. dollars, um, that it's almost impossible for there not to be like a consortium of a lot of very, very ultra wealthy individuals or even in the case of state-sponsored um, investment funds and, and groups. and But a really interesting idea crossed my mind, Luke. I know you said that it was not feasible, and I'm not going to suggest that it is. But thinking of football leagues and clubs as a cultural asset, as something of historical significance, cultural significance, made me think of UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And I have no idea how those work, but there's essentially a a process in place by which locations and and assets uh, in a variety of countries become protected and receive um, various legal standings and um, financial investment for their maintenance. I mean, we can dream that something like that could, could eventually happen. It may be a pipe dream, but it's an interesting thought. I want to ask you about what power fans do have to affect some change in the game. Something happened also in 2021, the announcement of something called the European Super League. And what happened was that fans in Europe woke up one day to hear that 12 of the the biggest and wealthiest clubs in Europe had declared that they were going to be creating their own league, essentially a non-competitive glamour league where all the best teams would be playing each other for essentially no real competitive purpose except to make as much money as possible. These 12 teams, which were based in England, Spain, and Italy, basically put the entire footballing system at risk and would have destroyed how the leagues operate. Fans mobilized, the media mobilized to criticize this, and within 48 hours, the whole initiative fell apart. So is the European Super League's failure an indication of what power fans and media possess, or was it an aberration, do you think? I think it's a that particular isolated incident, incident and the outcome is a, is a, a limited victory for fans 
and I'll explain why. Um, so it really depends on how you look at this. And I don't want to be tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist about it, but ultimately what you need to do is when you look at this issue, you need to take a couple of steps back and look at the wider landscape because this whole thing of a European Super League, which takes these certain teams into it that can't be relegated from it and hoover up all the, you know, as much kind of revenue, TV revenue as possible and essentially become a closed shop for elite football in Europe and everyone else is left to just whistle with the crumbs that are left on the table. You don't need me to, I mean, people who are listening here who just, you know, know about sport generally, you don't need me to explain to them why that's, you know, kind of under undercutting the, you know, the very kind of principle of, of what competitive sport is and what it traditionally has been in Europe. But ultimately this is, needs to be set in a wider context. And the wider context is a battle between the power brokers in football and what they actually want. Now, for example, the reason the clubs you've mentioned or that you referred to even entertained this idea in the first place is because they want a better cut of the revenue and the deal for the Champions League, say TV rights or image rights, whatever it may be. They want more of the money, basically. And they've often threatened this kind of kind of club that contains these clubs if you know what i mean this kind of organization that represents the clubs have always threatened this kind of thing and they've used it as almost a a negotiating tool to get more of what they want and what this was in my opinion was a really kind of um, a a really huge example like a very very taken to its furthest extent example of a a really strong-armed negotiating tactic now so ultimately ostensibly they look like they've been defeated but what are we seeing and what have we been seeing in the you know the decade or so and a half or so previously to where we are with european football now we've seen european football in the form of the champions league taking more and more prominence more and more priority than it did before we've seen Increase, increasing, you know, increasing in the number, increasing the number of different European tournaments that are available for teams to play in. We're seeing um, season-long European competition already. Really, I mean, so in, you know, the Champions League starts in whatever it is, September, November, or whatever, and goes all the way through till till May. I can't remember the specific dates, but it's essentially a season-long competition. It just runs alongside teams' domestic leagues. And we're seeing regularly now, we're seeing top teams, particularly in the case of you know Man City, who are desperate to win a Champions League, and teams like PSG and, and maybe one or two others, prioritising European competition over their domestic competition anyway. So, ultimately, what are we celebrating here? Are we celebrating the fact that, yeah, on paper, an official iteration of a European Super League has been defeated for now, but the reality is a lot of these top clubs are prioritising European competition anyway, and Champions League football and Europa League football and Conference League football is more and more prominent. Well, the victory is is, is kind of there in a different flavour if you look at it that way. So... This is best understood as a massive power struggle between decision makers and power brokers at the top of the game with football clubs and more often than not players and fans being the pawns in the in the game of chess, if you like. Well, we've spoken about some fairly disheartening issues in modern football, Luke, but I want to ask you, you know, as we look around the modern game today, if there's anything that you find heartening, and I want to make a suggestion uh, about some of the positive stories that I've been seeing in the game. Uh, Women's football has been on what could only be described as an astronomical rise in recent years. 
listeners in, in the States here will know that the U.S. Uh, women's national team um, has been a powerhouse globally for decades, just recently achieved pay equity with the men's national team, besides the fact that the women's national team has been so much more successful than the men's team for so long. In Europe and England especially, there's been much more investment in the game, albeit after decades of neglect and the women's game actually being banned for a number of decades in England by the English Football Association, or FA. Uh, But women's matches recently have been setting attendance records. This past summer, the England women's national team brought home the European Cup. And your production company, Stack, has just given its own exclusive online home to Upfront, a show dedicated to the women's game. How are you seeing this growth and and what maybe do you attribute the growth to? Um, I don't know if I'm that well qualified to answer that comprehensively, but I think I can answer it from a kind of stack and stack kind of point of view with a little bit of, you know, more kind of broad generalization in there. Um, I think people love football generally and they love sport and they love competitive sport. Um, And, Maybe this dovetails a little bit with some of the earlier answers I've given you around, like kind of social responsibility and 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 you know our attitude towards society generally uh, here at Stack. And yeah, you know, we want football to be for everyone, right? So underpinning all the answers I gave you earlier about why we kind of tackle these social issues is because we passionately believe that football is for everyone, right? So if you want to watch football and you're interested in football, no matter who you are, where you come from, um, you should be able to do that. Now, that obviously should extend to, to playing the game as well. And if you're good enough to play at a high level and you can compete and you can earn a living from the game and you can play to a level that people are interested in watching you play for, for their own entertainment, then you should be able to do that. It shouldn't be matter if you're, if you're a woman or not. So that's, I think, really important to, to kind of establish as a, as a kind of preface to the answer. And I think that there's a, a refreshing element to, to women's football. People don't see it as such a cynical thing. They don't see it as overly media-trained people and a kind of molly-coddled, super-rich, wealthy celebrities who play football. They see it as more accessible. They see it as more relatable, I believe. And I also think that, um, you know, we're, we're now seeing a situation where women are being supported to play. And if they're being supported to play, you know, they're going to get better at it and the product's going to get better and people are going to want to see more of it. And we've been ahead of it and we've tried to set an example for a few reasons. One is because we believe what I've just said and you know, that's something that the team shares as a, as, a, as a belief and so we've tried to put our best foot forward. And the second thing to do is to say, let's be honest with ourselves, right? I, I didn't grow up watching women's football because no one did in my generation because it wasn't on TV and there were no women's teams really that we knew of that we could watch. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is, if we want to add a, a women's football show to our to our roster, we're going to have to get someone else to do it because I I can't talk about it and I'm not going to patronise a sport that should that deserves to have the respect of being treated as its own sport by you know whacking out twenty minutes of stuff that I've just read on Wikipedia and a, a couple of highlights because I haven't got the basis knowledge in the game. So we said to the team, go out and find the best people we can that subscribe to the Rambles kind of values because it needs to be a sister show to the Ramble. Um, and are about making entertainment and are about, you know, having that chemistry that we talked about at the top of this, this, this show we're making now. And um, we'll give it the respect it deserves. We'll fund it. We'll pay the presenters to be on it. We'll give it a producer. We'll give it the equal billing and we'll, and we'll promote it. And we've, the final stage of that plan has been this summer where we've pushed it onto its own feed entirely and we've given it 
um, a load of existing subscribers that that we think will will enjoy it. And we've given them the platform and the support to go and do it. Now, in, in, in the case of Upfront, it's Flo, Chloe, and Rachel who've done all the all the hard work, you know, and, and along with the producers, Charlie and Finn, they've, they've done the kind of hard work and they deserve all the credit. And, um, you know, over and above that, I think, particularly here in this country, we love a winner, right? So the fact that England won the Euros is a... It's a massive thing. It's a really inspirational story. You know, I was, you know, I, I spoke to my niece who's six, um, the day after the European Championship final that England won, and she loves football, right? But she didn't really ever talk about it that much to me. And the first thing she said to me was, oh, "I want, to, I want a shirt with, um, with Leslie Russell on the back, right? Because it's it's so relatable to her. Like she can now see women playing, and she can try and emulate that. And that's really what it's all about. And and to be honest, I mean. I had a few kind of bits of pushback here and there from people saying, you know, I'm not sure the audience is there for women's football. You might not make that much money. You know, not how many people will listen to it. I feel like we could kind of worry about that later. I think we've got a responsibility to invest in it. And and if we invest in it and we really work hard at it, the audience will grow and it will be there and we'll find it and it will start to start to be a popular show. I, I feel like I don't want to be the kind of business owner that knows the price of everything but the value of nothing, right? Of course, you can't go too far that way because you'll end up with no money and no one will have a job and you know, you'll know you be the biggest legend in the doll queue. And no one wants that. Obviously, we've got a responsibility to our to our colleagues and to our presenters and we need to pay them and we need to have the money to do so. So we have to make com- commercially you know, sensible decisions. But at the same time, we can afford to, to, to look at the value of something rather than the price of it. And I think we try to do that. And, and to be honest, I, you know, I'll perhaps end this answer with one of my trademark barbs that I haven't really had an opportunity to give out today. Uh, I don't think the mainstream media and our rivals in the space and our kind of, um, you know, our, our kind of colleagues in the industry are doing enough. And I don't think they have done enough for ages. And I think what we've seen over the last month or two is them all kind of scratching around and, and struggling really hard and going 100 mile an hour to try and catch up. Whereas we've been doing a women's football show for well over a year now. Uh, and because we believe in it. We think it's the right thing to do. So I'm pleased they've come to the party as well. It's the right thing to do. I hope we see a lot more women's football on TV in an accessible place that people can experience and enjoy and, 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 and see. And because if you can see it, you can you can achieve it. And, and that is really, really important. There's no reason at all that based on your sex or your gender, you can't find something to play as a sport. And And the legacy of this Euros needs to be that women and young girls can play football if they want to because we're in 2022 and it seems absolutely just alien to me that that wouldn't be the case. I was actually, I mean, it's, 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 it kind of shames me a bit because I didn't spend an awful lot of my time thinking about this on that level, but I was really surprised when I saw the stuff that came out in the English press about um, the barriers that are still there for young girls and women to play football. I was just so naive about it and it, it angered me. So I'm hoping that the legacy, the true legacy of this win is that young girls and women everywhere get to get to um, get to play luke moore he's the co-host and producer of award-winning independent podcasts with stack including my favorite show the football ramble luke thank you so much for joining us on the new story is oh you're welcome thank you very much i'm sorry if my cats were uh, meowing in the background they're hungry for their lunch so um, i should have fed them beforehand so i can only apologize but thank you for having me And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. We'll be back soon with a new episode. In the meantime, share this episode with a friend or leave us a rating and review, which goes a long way into helping other listeners find and enjoy our show. Until next time, 
I'm Dave Rosillo. This has been The New Story Is. Bye for now. <laughs>